Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger of the Better Off Podcast. And in honor of Financial Literacy Month, we're going to teach you something you didn't know. How important state regulators have become in this day and age. The fiduciary rule that Department of Labor under the Obama administration uh, put out is very important protections to consumers. That just says that your investment advisor is a fiduciary and must act in the best interest of the consumer. That should not be a controversial proposition. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. Well, you know, every day it feels like regulations for the biggest companies in the U.S., in the financial sector, in the payday lending sector, environmental regulations, everything's getting rolled back. We got a guy running the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau whose claim to fame is that he wants to get rid of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And given that and the likelihood that Essentially, even if the CFPB sticks around, it's just not going to have a lot of power. You might be thinking, who's got our backs? Well, as it turns out, a lot of regulators at the state level will be able to have our backs. And that is why we have invited a great guest today, Maria Vulo. She is the superintendent of the New York State Department of Financial Services. That's also called DFS. What Vulo brings to this job is something really important. 20 years as a litigation partner at a big law firm. She knows what this deal is. She knows how consumers need some protection. So without further ado, our interview with Maria Vulo. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Maria T. Vulo, welcome to Better Off. Good morning. Good morning. Maria, you are the guest that has arrived earliest of any of our guests on the show. So we so appreciate that. We're early birds here. Sure, so am I. All right, so we start the program. We want to know what is something really great you've done in your financial life or in your career, something that you say, like, this is the best thing I ever did. Well, the I would say the best thing I ever did, I can't say one. There are two, and there are two major cases that I brought as a private lawyer pro bono. One of them was... Uh, representing Bosnian women who had been subjected to rape and genocide in the former Yugoslavia. And Mm -hmm. we received uh, a large $745 million verdict for them against the former Bosnian Serb leader. Oh, my God. And that was just an empowering case. And the other case was I uh, brought a case on behalf of Planned Parenthood and doctors who had been subjected to threats because they provided abortions. And I received a $100 million verdict in Portland, Oregon, on their behalf against anti-abortion terrorists. Wow. And wait so a second. those are my those two are great huge. career moments. Those are unbelievable. Um, okay, so why you are here today is not because you are, you have a storied litigation career, which you do, but you are the superintendent of the New York State Department of Financial Services in the lingo we call DFS. Yes. So you made this big shift out of private practice, even though you were doing a lot of pro bono stuff, into public service. And... Tell people what the department actually does. So DFS is an agency that was formed in 2011 by merging the former New York State Banking Department and the New York State Insurance Department and creating a financial services law that even gave it greater powers. So I regulate banks and insurance companies and other financial services providers in the state of New York. How much power do you have at the state level when we know there's lots of regulators all over the nation? 
Well, that is actually a critical point, particularly now when the federal government is not doing anything for consumers or real people. It's it's the job of the states, such as my agency, to fill that void, and we're doing that. And it's amazing that you came in at this point, right? Because, I mean, obviously, if you were in a more activist environment at the national level, the state still has to do its job, and there are certainly cracks that things fall through, but... Now we have a new administration, which is essentially rolling back regulations. We know that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has basically been defanged. So what can you do? Give us an example. Full disclosure, I know one of Maria's colleagues, and I heard all about this title insurance um, oh. that you, that, so I got very excited when I heard I may be the only person who got excited by title insurance. Talk a little bit about that example, how the state came in and what you're doing and sure. what the situation was prior. Sure. So title insurance, we regulate title insurance companies uh, and the agents. And it's it's just a, um, a business where you have 95 percent of the premiums going to salaries and meals and entertainment and all this other stuff and less than 5% on actual claims. Why? Because our record system is pretty good today in terms of transfer of houses and and title. And so the title insurance industry doesn't really have a lot of claims. They certainly have to do some work. But I discovered and learned through an investigation that they were giving out gifts and gift cards and designer handbags. Wait a minute. All of these things. How did you find out about that? We have very um, broad Broad investigative powers. So you get a tip? Uh, well, part of our investigation was some anonymous information, but I don't think that it was a secret that this is the way these companies and people were operating. And, you know, the agency has been doing a, for a very long time an investigation and looking at this. They are very aggressive in response, and I was not going to stand for it anymore. It's amazing because it's one of those weird businesses where it's like, oh, everyone needs title insurance because you're closing on your house or your condo or your co-op, and you don't think twice about it. And so, Do you know anybody who ever made a claim against the title insurer because there was something wrong? I don't think I do, as a matter of fact. So why do we have it? Well, certainly years back, there's a need for title insurance uh, because you want to make sure that your title is uh, sound. So I understand the concept of it, but over time, there hasn't been much of a need, but your bank still requires it. Right. And so that's really why everybody gets it. And you don't really think twice because your lawyer or your broker, whoever brings you to the table is like, oh, and they're the one that gets you the title insurance. So the consumer is never actually in the conversation of who should I select? And that's where the meals and entertainment and the lavish parties, because they're lavishing that on their referral sources. And then they're passing that along in rates. So you're paying more for your title insurance because they're having parties. (sighs) And that's what I said. That's not appropriate. Especially because I I bet they weren't really good parties. They were probably really lame I don't go to any of those parties. I I can tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) So explain how your, it would be called a department or agency, which one? Uh, agency. agency. Okay, yep. so so in the, in your in your agency, how you coordinate with other regulators? For example, I'm going to throw out. Let's say that there's a bad actor whose bank charter is in New York, and there's a an investigation that's going on through either the Federal Reserve or the SEC. How do you get involved in that? 
if they have a bank charter in New York, we get involved because we have the charter and we have the authority to make whatever inquiry we think is appropriate of that institution. We learn about things from a lot of different sources. We can have information that's confidential provided to us. Our examiners in the agency who spend time in institutions learn things. We hear things from the outside. Sometimes we read about things in news reports uh, and when we follow up on those things. There are many circumstances where we would coordinate. We coordinate with law enforcement. Mm. Uh, we have great relationships. I'm actually a law enforcement agency as well. I don't. I have prosecutorial investigative, not prosecution authority uh, for criminal cases, but we refer out those types of things. We coordinate with other states. Uh, you mentioned the CFPB before. We had a terrific relationship with the CFPB and did a lot of work together. Let me give you a particular thing that's just, you know, consistently bugs me. So we have the Equifax data breach, right? Mm-hmm. And Equifax is, is that a New York organization? Is it uh, no, no Equifax is based in Georgia, okay. but it operates, it operates in New here. York. So you have your hand in it potentially because they do big business here, yes. right? So. Explain to me what happens after like a data breach like that. You get hauled up to Capitol Hill, you testify. And then what happens, you know, if, say, CFPB or um, the oversight, they have very weird oversight, actually. So how would you get involved in something like that? So we have gotten involved. So, I mean, that was just a horrendous data breach. 145 plus million Americans had their data breached by a hack. And it's a prime example of what happens when a company is not regulated. They didn't have good cybersecurity protections. They didn't have any good incident response. This is all based on public information. They didn't have anything, uh, you know, for a cybersecurity policy for a company whose entire product was acquiring consumer data and selling consumer data. Because I regulate the banks and insurance companies that also provide that data to these companies, I was seriously concerned about it. So we went out right away, we did a consumer alert, we did a regulation uh, requiring them to register in New York and be subject to our cybersecurity rules, and we're working with other states to examine them on their cybersecurity practices. So let's talk about insurance companies for a second because um, I have a love-hate relationship with insurance. Most people do. just going to say. So Mm -hmm. certified financial planner. I love the concept of insurance. I think it is brilliant. I mean, you basically take this law of large numbers. You spread risk across a big, huge pool of people, and you get coverage. It's fantastic. Like, there's no other way. Like, I I can't even, like imagine a better concept but the practices sometimes of these insurance companies can be mind-blowing first I want to understand how is it that there is really that this all sat at the state level that we have insurance regulated at the state level whereas securities and brokerage they are state people but they're but really the oversight comes from nationally. Why is insurance so different? It has been historically a state-based system since Benjamin Franklin in Philadelphia formed the first insurance company. Oh, so Uh, when there was a fire in Philadelphia, and that was the beginning of the concept of insurance, which, as you said, is, is a terrific and important concept. It's spreading the risk. The larger the pool of people who buy in, the the ability to spread that risk and lower prices for all 
so important, and it's been a state-based system from the very beginning. So there is a state commissioner of insurance in every state. I'm New York's, and we work through the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, and we actually have some... Uh, you know, pretty uniform uh, regulations that we do together. Mm -hmm. But it's a state-based system, and it's important that it remain a state-based system because the states are connected to their consumers. And insurance is a consumer product fundamentally. And the states are also connected to their even their economic development on a local level and what's needed and what's not. But you have state governors, state legislatures that pass a lot of laws. Mm -hmm. And so, and it's important, and certainly from New York's point of view, it's really important that that state-based system maintain because we know how to protect our consumers best. I hear that, especially on the health insurance, auto, property casualty, I totally get that. When it comes to life and life products, Some of them are hybrid products that are also securities, like, you know, the classic annuities, right? Yes. So how would you be involved if there was a... um the sale of annuities that is maybe inappropriate for clients mm-hmm. and it's a variable annuity meaning so it has a, a, a securities component is that all under the state umbrella or, or do you get involved because it's SEC because there's also these sub accounts right so very very uh, important because uh, there are many circumstances where there is more than one regulator so I regulate the insurance companies mm-hmm. and so an insurance company that sells annuity products they have to get our pr- approval for whatever those policy forms are, uh, and they, they have to follow New York's consumer protections. To the extent there's a registered you know, financial advisor, broker dealers that are selling annuity products, and certainly when it comes to qualified plans, uh, you have SEC. You may also have the Department of Labor with respect to the sale of them in qualified plans. But the state-based system of insurance in terms of the companies that are issuing those policies is remains so it's more on the the seller mm-hmm. and the producer of those policies that that um, would have SEC and I think where you see some of this overlap is in the DOL fiduciary rule. That, yay, you brought uh, it up. I yes. didn't have to mention the F word. I'm so excited. Oh, no, so the the fiduciary rule the Department of Labor under the Obama administration uh, put out is very important protections to consumers that just says that your investment advisor is a fiduciary and must act in the best interest of the consumer. That should not be a controversial proposition. Uh, we put out a few um, months ago a, a rule in New York, a proposed regulation that is a suitability regulation as well as a best interest standard for both annuities and life insurance. So okay, we added the life insurance on that because the same principles apply when you're selling somebody life insurance, the producer should act in the best interest of the consumer and their compensation should not be part of the equation as to which product they Propose. Okay, when you say we are we are doing this, tell me what that means. Do you have to like sell this? Does there have to? Can you basically wave your magic regulatory wand, which I see and it's beautiful. It's got sparkles, and you have a tiara as well. Uh, <laughs> do you get to wave your wand, put your tiara on, and boom, there's a rule? Or does this have to go through? some sort of New York State horrible political process? It has to go through a New York State process, which is called SAPA, the State Administrative Procedures Act. I propose the regulation. 
there's a comment period of 60 days. We receive comments, and then I can go out with a final regulation after those comments. And the comment period is important. Actually, while we think that we get things right, we certainly don't think that our first draft is necessarily perfect, and that's why the comment period is important. We hear from the industry. We hear from the consumer groups. We hear from anybody else, depending upon what the subject matter is. And then we'll go out with our final say. So in that sense, it's not part of a political process, but it's certainly part of a regulatory process. And frankly, the federal government, I wish they would follow that process too, because they tend to sort of do things by fiat without taking into consideration comments. Okay. Uh, so let's go, let's, let's stay on fiduciary for a second. Sure. Because I love this. So DOL comes out, here's the rule, you have to put the best interest, and then there's, and then the insurance lobby went to work. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a huge way. But also under the previous administration. So we know that there was just zillions of dollars spent. Totally. Okay. And what they say is we want to carve out. And from my understanding, so, you know, I'm a certified financial planner. I do a lot of work with the CFP board. My understanding of a lot of people who were involved in this is that the insurance industry was among the biggest critics and battlers of the rule. So if fiduciary is frozen at the DOL right now, And could you, I'm not saying you will, but could you basically say, I am putting into effect a fiduciary standard that's not based on suitability. Like, it is it. This is it. Everyone is in. You have to put a a sheet in paper in front of like, hey, Maria, you want to buy this annuity? Here's the three choice. This is why it costs more for you. Here's what your options are. The customers may still choose to do it. But it would be a strict fiduciary standard. Could a state do that? So I can do what I have done, which is a regulation that requires suitability, which means the product has to be suitable to that particular customer. Yeah, that's customer, easy. That's right? all those muck. And we've know already that. had that right. for annuities, but we're expanding it to life insurance and adding the best interest standard. And the key about the best interest standard is the compensation point that the compensation cannot take be taken into account in terms of the recommendation. So yes, I can do it. Fiduciary as a standard is a little bit more complicated uh, if you're thinking about that word as defined by law. Mm-hmm. But I can do best interest standard and as the regulator require it, it doesn't create the private cause of action for the consumer. But as the regulator, if there's um, if they're not acting in the best interests, I can certainly go after the company and I can get restitution for the consumer. But it doesn't create that. So that's a little bit of a lead. I got that's you. A no, little that's bit good. legal in that distinction for that. So, but I can I do what I can. Right. And, and I think this is what we're doing that we can do. This is better off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with Maria Vulo in just a minute. You know, it, it, when you talk to people like Maria, any regulator, you start to understand that there are a lot of bad actors in the financial services industry. I look at this industry like it's a drunk relative, like I'm from the industry. I love the industry. I love my drunk relative. But boy, that drunk relative sometimes does misbehave. So what can you do? to ensure that you're working with a company that always has your back. Don't worry. I got it for you. Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. One of the reasons it's so easy to work with a company like Betterment is they're transparent. They don't get commissions for recommending funds. And in fact, Betterment doesn't have funds of their own. That means they can do what they believe is right for you. 
If you need reassurance that you're making the right financial decision, you can even speak with a team of CFP professionals and licensed financial experts right at Betterment. Just go to Betterment.com slash better off. Betterment, we think what your money can do. And now back to our interview with Maria Vulo. If you put your Paul Weiss hat on for a second, help me understand this is in your previous life. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you have a tenure there. So now you're a lawyer and you got a big insurance company as your client. And they're like, oh, my God, the, they're going to be a ton of lawsuits. And listen, I was in the client business. Frivolous lawsuits occur all the time. And you know mm-hmm. that, too. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we want to balance between protecting consumers, but not letting the Yahoo plaintiff's bar go nuts. Right. So. When you are talking to these people, they talk so much about the the litigation risk. What I don't understand is, don't they have risk anyway when people sell crappy stuff? Well, they do. But if they if we're if we're imposing a certain standard uh, of best interest, might that create another level? But I I don't know how you fight against. You have to act in the best interest of your customer. Right. And if you do act in the best interest of the customer and you recommend a product that is suitable for that customer and your compensation is not part of the choice as to which product you recommend, you shouldn't be sued and you wouldn't be sued. Are there frivolous lawsuits? They're frivolous lawsuits no matter what. That right. argument doesn't move me mm-hmm. because people will sue. That's just the name of the game. You know, but that's not, I don't think, something that should cause someone in my position to say, oh, that means I'm not going to proceed mm-hmm. with what is a very good regulation with a standard that they should follow. Would it be better to have even a, a, a watered-down fiduciary standard from the SEC rather than from DOL? From DOL or DFS. Or DFS, either yes. one. I mean, would In other look, words, would you rather have it at the national level? Well, it depends on the applicability of it, right? So the DOL or the SEC don't govern every sale of an insurance product. They only, you know, DOL is only qualified plans. The SEC, similarly, has to be in some kind of an issuance of something that's connected to a security. And so, or the investment advisors and and, and that, life insurance products are sold by people all the time that don't have the certified, you know, requirements that would be for qualified plans mm-hmm. or for SEC So they would fall through the, they'd fall through the cracks anyway. Of course. And that's why now annuities obviously annuities are are but but even the DOL rule was only annuities in qualified plans. So that doesn't apply to all there are, the regular person out here is buying an annuity or a life insurance product from a broker or from an agent of an insurance company that would not be covered by either of those rules. And that's where the states really come in because we cover it all. And the debate that we're going through right now is why DFS are you covering life insurance? Because we know that qualified plans have annuities and some life insurance, but life insurance is a much bigger market that is not covered by the DOL rule. How how do you, um, I guess that you're like, not invited to Hartford a lot because they don't like you because the insurance companies don't like you or they are they feel do they do you get big pushback I mean from time to time obviously they express their point of view um and I, I and I listen to their point of view and I express mine I think on this one we actually have some companies like the mutual companies that are 
uh, certainly, you know, positive, more positive about mm-hmm. applying this to life insurance mm-hmm. uh, compared to some of the for-profit or the, you know, out-of-state insurers. But I think, you know, they recognize that we will engage in a dialogue, but first principles are you should act in the best interest of your consumer. And right. And you, you want to. And I don't see how they fight fight that and so I think we'll come up with something that addresses some concerns but still has that you know main thing and some of the current concerns are logistical and you mentioned documents and all of that Mm. so what exactly does the producer have to give the consumer what and and how big a choice does the producer have to consider in choosing the product to recommend i was talking you know, there's to a lot of issues so i was talking to a securities lawyer uh you know a wall street securities lawyer who was just chewing my ear off about like you don't understand this is going to add millions of dollars to the operating costs and i'm like i don't understand that amazon can get like a big huge like 12 rolls of bounty to my apartment in <laughs> 28 hours and you guys can't figure out how to create like a seamless process and it does seem like there is a pro- there's there is a litigation fear but it's also a process fear yes and how do we oversee that the certified financial planner board of standards has out for comment a new fiduciary standard which is freaking out many of the big yeah. banks because they're saying well, then we're just going to tell these guys they got to give up their CFPs. Can you imagine being in the business and working your butt off and actually earning this accredited mark and then have your boss say, you know what? We don't want to do that because we don't want to be you have be, to be subject to, to their that. standard and we don't want to have the oversight to have to put, do that. And that's really what the conflict is right now. They don't want that. They don't want to have to put a system in place that's for this, you know, 80,000 CFPs across the country. They don't want to have to do that. We got millions of brokers, blah, blah, blah. I am just always mystified that why is it just feels like it shouldn't be so hard. But I guess it is. Well, look, I mean, I always think there's a difference between the outburst that you're referencing in in them saying these things to be able to push back on some reform as opposed to is it really as bad as they say it is and I don't believe it's as bad as they say it is I mean they have to onboard all those people they have to put whatever the financial records to be able to pay them their commissions or what have you that's all onboarded I hope electronically I hope in a seamless way they certainly want to do that I don't see putting all of this you know, figuring out what exactly they have to do. So when they do their analysis of suitability and best interest, what products are they sh- should they be considering and what documentation. The documentation requirement, by the way, protects the producer. Right. You're right? getting someone so, to sign off. Exactly. So they are protected by it. They're saying these are the products that I considered. This is what I recommended to the consumer. These were the factors that caused me to do it. That protects them. So this fear of lawsuits, we're actually protecting them by creating the process. And, and I don't see that process as being that difficult. It might take some time because they need to work it through because they have producers and agents, depending on the company, it may be very different how they're structured. But and we'll work with them on the timing of it and and making sure that we're clear on what we're requiring. Mm. And that's really, I think, the give and take that's going on right now. All right. So you come from fancy white shoe law firm. You go into public service and, you know, like, uh, can you speak to this idea of the revolving door? Because sometimes I feel like it's said in a pejorative way. But in your case, I think it's kind of great because you're a corporate lawyer for all this time. You know where the bodies are buried. You kind of get it. You know what people are doing. You know what the clients are sort of thinking. And you come to the 
public sector, not so much like I, I don't get the sense that like anyone's in the pocket. I think that it's just like you get it. Mm-hmm. And you know, and don't they have? I would think more respect for you because you come from that world. Well, certainly. I mean, the revolving door, I think, is more people using government service to then go back and make money off of those connections. Yeah, you are a partner, Paul Weiss. Yeah, You're looking large so, already. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm not sure that it works in the other direction, except. You know, certainly if there are people that are going into public service in order to act on behalf of industry and only industry, well, that's not your role in public service. And your role in public service is act to the public. So my constituents are every New Yorker, and I take that very seriously. And I wouldn't have taken this job if I couldn't separate that out. But I do believe that my experience helps. It helps because I understand, as you noted, uh, I understand how corporations work. I understand business. I understand finance. And and I, you know, I know how to interact with them. But I, I have as a person a very strong belief in the protection of the consumer. And I think it's that balance I talk about all the time. I believe that industry should flourish. I believe New York has to continue to be the financial capital of the world. Uh, and they can flourish and protect consumers at the same time. If they couldn't, then New York wouldn't be where it is because we are the progressive capital of the nation as well as the financial capital of the world. Let's talk about anti-money laundering, one of my favorite topics. Can you talk about whether or not DFS would get involved with examining claims of money laundering among real estate companies, small banks, you know, Hucksters, talk about how you find that and what you can do. Okay, so I cannot speak on any particular investigation. Oh, no, of course not. Uh, and so, you know, but as a general proposition, not specific to any party let's or just, any company. A, yeah, right. Mark just, and I have a business, and we are uh, we are bringing uh, imported pasta in from Sicily, and beautiful place yes. and um, mer- we are we are churning through and getting lots of uh, we got banks lots of different bank accounts and uh, Mark's uh, college friend Svetlana Uskaklova, uh is uh, our money person she's backing us she's not a US citizen and there's a lot of money coming in and out. And, you know, all of a sudden from our pasta company, we're buying, you know, huge penthouses uh, in fancy buildings all over New York. Then this guy, Rich, gives a tip, calls up your office and says, I think there's some funny business going on. What happens from that moment? So as the regulator of New York State Chartered Banks, which includes over 100 branches of foreign banks, since so many of these foreign banks have branches in New York, we give them the license to operate there, as well as the New York State Chartered Banks. To the extent we learn of any tip or any information where there could be the possibility of money laundering or the possibility of um, access to capital by a politically exposed person mm-hmm. uh, or anything that would raise an alarm or should raise an alarm by that financial institution, then we can, any of our institutions, we can ask them questions and they have to produce the information to us. Money laundering is a critical area that my agency, DFS, is focused on and has been since its founding. In fact, one of the regulations I did was a transaction monitoring regulation, and we've done many consent orders with institutions who have not you know, appropriately uh, addressed money laundering concerns. Mm-hmm. It's a real concern. Real estate is 
always a place that one looks because if you're, you know, if you're someone in Russia with cash, you want to get that cash out of Russia or in Ukraine or some of these other right. countries. That's what they want to do because it's worth a lot more if you right. get it you're out. Right, la- you're laundering it to get to clean to get it, it out. out. Right, exactly. You're getting out of there, and real estate, you know, very large condominium purchases. What real estate is a huge place for money laundering because then they parked the cash there, and if they then subsequently go and get some financing to pay back that money to the person who helped them uh, do that. You know, there's money laundering, and of course, money laundering is used, you know, for the drug trade and lots of other terrorist financing and other things. So we do look at that. I don't regulate the real estate, but it's the financial institutions, the banks I got that I do. In closing, uh, this is great because it's like regulatory boot camp, which yes, I love. That's great. So you made. This, I just want to ask a personal question for you: Is that you made this decision after we get so many people who call the show? And they're really contemplating sort of a, a second career, a third career. How did you make come to the determination that you want, besides being, you know, asked, which is wonderful. You live a really comfortable life. You're in, you're sort of on the train. You got a corporate lifestyle. Uh, what factors did you consider before you decided, I'm jumping off the corporate train and going into public sector work? I think the question for me, and it continues to be the question every day, is can I make a difference in people's lives? While you can do work in the private sector, and I am a, I, I'm pro-private sector, obviously, as well, I think public service is the place where you can make a difference in people's lives. And if you're committed to doing that, because it's not just touching one person, you can touch many people with your action. And it's, it's the model that I live by at the office, too, when I ask people, what can we do to help and I say ordinary, real people. You can have policies. You can have all this stuff. How are you actually affecting people and making their world better? Public service is not for people who want to destroy government. It's for people who believe in government and believe in government working for the good of people. And so that's my that's the reason I did it and continue to do it. All right. Before we leave, the beginning of the program, I said, what was your best financial decision or Oops. career decision? And you mentioned these two amazing cases. That was a, a pro bono case that really helped so many people. What's a goof that you made in your financial life? In my finance, you know, to be honest, I haven't made a goof in my financial life. And I think part of that is because, you know, I grew up in a lower middle class neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York, in a family where my parents were um, high school graduates and, and but but wanted us all to do better. And so the expectations of where I would be financially or otherwise were, were high, but they weren't in the field of me being able to say I goofed. I mean, I think I... You know, I did pretty well uh, in that. Certainly there were things along the way that, you know, should I have pulled out or not pulled out? But I don't really focus on those individual things. If there's anything I say is I did a lot in public service. I think that youth and the younger time frame, maybe I should have done more mm. uh, in the earlier years than just be totally devoted to the legal practice. But it served me well, so I don't really look back, but I think That's your 20s and yeah. your 30s is where you should get out and do more publicly. Maria T. Vulo, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, it's time to focus on you. After our interview segment, we do talk to you and we have our listener 
question of the week. This is when you get to ask me and Mark any question that's on your mind, financially speaking. So if it's anything that has to do with money, maybe it's insurance or maybe it's real estate or investing, uh, give us a holler. It's very easy to get in touch with us. Just send us an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. Today, we're talking to Liz, who is on the line from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Hi, Liz. Welcome to Better Off. What can I do for you? Hi, Jill. It's great to be on. Uh, We are looking at uh, umbrella insurance and had two questions, really. How how much to get and how to shop around and compare policies, if, if that's even possible. Oh, absolutely. So first, tell me a little bit about why you're making this inquiry, because it's um, it's sort of like one of those eat your vegetables questions that I have to sneak in when someone's not expecting it. So thank you for actually asking about it. But what is it in your life that brought up umbrella insurance as a concept? Uh, originally it came up because we had kids and then we had babysitters um, coming in. So mm-hmm. we just wanted the protection. Mm-hmm. Now it's coming up uh because we are moving and we are turning our existing condo into a rental. Ah. And so we wanted to make sure we're adequately covered. Ah, very good. So normally when you think about an umbrella insurance, it's just that. It's this greater umbrella that, that doesn't, that it's a catch-all. So as you said, if someone's in your apartment, maybe it's a babysitter who has an accident. Or a lot of times people will actually purchase or expand their umbrella coverage when they're having work done on their homes because they'll say, well, you know, all I need is for one of my guys or gals to trip in my living room and break his jaw and then they sue you and you want to have coverage for that. Normally, umbrella insurance is sold in tandem with other types of insurance, whether it be auto or property and casualty insurance. So how do you have a standalone umbrella policy or did you buy it with your homeowner's policy? Uh, we actually bought it with our, um, I, I think at the auto policy mm-hmm. at the time was mm-hmm. how they linked it. Yep. Okay. Because that's usually the way to do it. Have you gone back and asked your current insurer whether they could expand your umbrella coverage? Yes, uh, we have. Um, part of it is also figuring out our net worth and assets and how much more we would need at right, the time. Right, right. And, and have you done that? Yeah, we we did a quick uh, back of envelope sort of mm-hmm. uh, net, and it was around 1.5. So mm-hmm. we fall in that middle of 1 million and 2 million, and they usually do the coverage in increments of a million. Okay. So what do you have right now, a million? Yeah, just a flat million. And how much is that costing you? Do you happen to know? When we put both properties on with our new home and old, uh, the rental property, Mm -hmm. it's about $100. So, I mean, I would just, first of all, you you see already that Umbrella's coverage is pretty cheap. Yeah. Considering what it covers. So I would go up to $2 million, number one. And number two, because you're sort of like looking at all of your coverage, what I would definitely do is go out and get more pricing for yourselves. So that may mean going to an independent property and casualty insurance broker, you know, because again, not unlike the investment world, if you go to an agent of a specific company, they can only sell you what the company has to offer. But if you go to someone who's independent, who specializes in property and casualty, then they'll get you a bunch of different quotes. Now, I'm going to just tell you something funny, Liz. I did the same thing recently. Mm -hmm. Uh, My my friend said to me, we were talking about the fact that I was doing some construction and we were talking about umbrella coverage. 
And uh, a friend of mine said to me, well, let's look let, let, look through your insurance and what you have, which is really the worst thing ever. It's like saying, you know, let me let me just poke my eyes out with hot pokers right now. But I did it and I looked at my current coverage of my regular homeowners coverage and I said, you know what, this is actually not great coverage. And I sent it out to bid. Now, the funny thing for me is I sent it out to bid and I got much better coverage, but the price went up. But I knew that it was I was underinsured, essentially. Okay, so what you may want to do, since you are buying a new place and now you're turning this this other place, your former residence into a rental, you may want to get a whole new look, a fresh set of eyes on what you have and your current coverage and make sure that it's enough. And I always err on the side when it comes to insurance of insuring up than down because your net worth is going to keep increasing anyway. So how old are you? Uh, 40. Yeah. So, I mean, I would go definitely do the two million, but I would take this opportunity to do something which is horrifying to think about, which is let me look at all of my insurance coverage. So how would we go about finding an independent property casualty broker? Uh, Do you work? Do you manage your own money? Do you have? Tell me what you do. Yeah, we self-manage. Okay. You know what you do? Put in uh, something like high end property casualty insurance. See what happens. Just see who pops up. And then I would ask for referrals because, you know, these are, you know, you'll you'll be able to find a bunch, but I had found that I use somebody who exclusively looks at people who have, you know, houses of a certain amount of uh, uh, net worth. And so you kind of want to get matched up with somebody who is in your range, right? And you may want to even find out that one way to do it is like, I know that like very good umbrella coverage is offered through AIG. Remember that company that almost brought us all down? Uh, they they are uh, known to be very good and, and they kind of charge more, but they don't mess around. They always pay out. So I think that that's kind of the other thing. Like, I don't want the cheapest insurer because I don't want to actually be the one who's handling with the insurance agent. Like, oh, no, we're not going to make pay out on this claim. And and do you have an accountant? We don't right now, but I know we will need to get one next year. So when you're looking around, this is what I would do. I would ask, you know, attorneys, accountants, friends, whoever you like run into and say, who do you use for your insurance, for your property and casualty? And try to get a name there. Google a little bit. And if you run into a problem, send me a note and I can nose around with some friends of mine in the area. How's that? That sounds great. All right. Good luck. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you so much to Maria Vulo, the superintendent of the New York State Department of Financial Services. Don't forget, we've got new episodes of Better Off every Tuesday and Thursday. You can get them wherever you get your podcasts or hop onto our website, jillonmoney.com. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. We're distributed by Cadence 13. Our executive producer is Mark Telercio, and we're sponsored by Betterment. See you next week. 